0: Hello, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast, where I share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Today, my guest is Dr. Kelly Shanahan. Dr. Shanahan is an OBGYN who was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer at the age of 53. She has been living with metastatic cancer for over five years. Since her diagnosis, she has become this incredible patient advocate, focusing on the importance of bringing the patient voice To research and patient care. I'm actually speaking with her at the ASCO American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting. She took the time out of a very busy schedule to speak with me and we had a great conversation. Please excuse any noise and background sounds that you may hear because it is pretty much impossible to find a quiet spot to record at the convention center. Welcome Kelly.
1: Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me via Twitter. Isn't it amazing how we can learn things from, and find people through social media? So I live at Lake Tahoe, California. I am an OBGYN, and back in 2008, I was going about my life. My office manager scheduled me for a mammogram because I was not as good as I tried to tell my patients to be, and I had gone a couple of years without having a mammogram. I had obvious breast cancer on that mammogram. And living in a small town um, without a lot of services, I had a great surgeon. We didn't have a full-time plastic surgeon. I knew that a lumpectomy wouldn't work for me because that's a 45-minute drive every day for radiation therapy. So I went to the University of California, San Francisco, and had a bilateral mastectomy with the start of immediate implant reconstruction But I had one positive lymph node, and I knew that that was going to buy me chemotherapy. So I underwent the standard four months of adriamycin plus cytoxin followed by a taxane and went on and had my final reconstruction and was given a prescription for an aromatase inhibitor because I was stage 2B, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And I started the medication, and I went on about my life. No, I must admit that I was not. I was not the most compliant patient. I developed really bad arthralgia, arthritis symptoms in my hands. I'm an OBGYN. I catch babies. I do surgery. So I stopped my medication early because I thought, heck, I've had bilateral mastectomy. I've had chemo. I'm fine. Um, back then, when you were early stage, you were told Just let us know if you have a symptom. I asked, should I do tumor markers? Should I have scans periodically? Eh, Just let us know if you have a symptom. Well, fast forward five years. I developed back pain. I thought I pulled a muscle. It didn't get better. It got worse. I thought, hmm, maybe I herniated a disc. Eventually, I got scans, and I had metastases in literally every bone in my body. My back pain was because I had fractured a vertebrae. I was about to break my left leg. Wow. Yeah. So six days after I was diagnosed, one of my orthopedic surgeon friends was shoving a titanium rod down my left femur. Ten days after that, I started a very, very unconventional course of IV chemotherapy recommended by the one and only oncologist who came to our town part-time. And I was on combination IV chemo, two different regimens for 14 months. And now I've been on the more conventional oral aromatase inhibitor treatment since 2015. I am incredibly lucky, as lucky as anyone with metastatic disease can be, because I have had no evidence of active disease for five of the five and a half years that I've been living with this. That's amazing. It is, it is pretty amazing. People ask me all the time, well, you know, what treatments were you on? What did you do? Did you change your diet? And my answer is, it doesn't matter what treatments I did because they may not work for you. And, And initially I did change my diet and I didn't eat sugar and I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And then I finally realized life is short, you know, really truly eat the dessert first. Yeah. I truly believe the reason that I am no evidence of active disease is pure and simple, sheer luck. And I'm grateful for that luck. Mm-hmm. And I'll take that luck for as long as I
0: can. That's very true. I mean, you can do, you can change your diet. but And I like what you said, that just because it worked for you, it doesn't mean that's going to work for someone else. Right. So I never... I get these questions. I'm pretty active on social media. Mm-hmm. Some of
1: the closed Facebook groups for metastatic patients um, on Twitter. And people will ask me, well, what, what did you do? It doesn't matter mm-hmm. because I'm not you. You're not me. Um, and it doesn't really matter what I did. You, you, have to, you have to see the recommendations of your doctor for your treatment. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I want to come back to the social media and the patient advocacy mm-hmm. in a few minutes. but. You know, so, people with early stage disease, a lot of people have a hard time going, going about life and, and worrying about recurrence. And what went through your mind when that happened to you? Well, it was, it's funny because I, it never,
1: ever, ever crossed my mind that my back pain could be breast cancer. Mm. I'm a doc, boy, believe me, I felt like an idiot for a while. I'm a doctor, I should know better. But I really bought into the whole early detection saves lives. Mm -hmm. And I'd hit the five-year mark from my early-stage diagnosis. And I'm, five years, you're cured. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about it anymore. So it it really was a shock to me when I had the scans done. Um, I really was thinking that I was going to be talking to one of the orthopedic surgeons about what they're going to do about my herniated disc and not Mm -hmm. having to find an oncologist to talk about what to do with this cancer that, that won't kill me. The first oncologist I saw was a community oncologist, and one of the things he said to me was, I know you know the statistics. You are not a statistic. And I'm very grateful for that, um, because none of us are statistics. Mm-hmm. And you know, while we know the average life expectancy after this diagnosis, we have to remember that that data applies to large groups of people and not to individuals. And also, it's
0: old. Mm-hmm. The current life expectancy statistics are at least five years old. Yeah, they presented mm-hmm. data today for the her2 positive for 58 months. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's you know that's, that's five great. years. Yeah.
1: When I was diagnosed, my daughter my daughter was nine when I was early stage, and I remember telling her, you know, tucking her into bed a couple nights after I was diagnosed and saying, you know. Mommy has breast cancer, and here's what's going to happen. And she asked me questions like, are they going to cut your breasts off? And And then she said, are you going to die? And I said, well, you know, someday I'll die. The dog's going to die. The cat's going to die. We're all going to die. But I'm not going to die from breast cancer because I'm going to kick its ass. I had to give her a quarter for saying <laughs> the A word. And then, you know, fast, then go five years later. She's not quite 15. I very um, foolishly scheduled these scans on my birthday. I had been having back pain for months. But I was busy and I really thought it was just, you know, Ooh. a herniated disc. Yeah. And I was, wasn't going to do surgery. And blah. So I looked out and about six weeks out from the time I decided I probably should have some scans done. There were only a couple patients on the schedule and it happened to be my birthday. So I scheduled the scan for that day, the scans for that day. Um, and it was a Thursday. And because I'm a doctor, I had the luxury of being able to look at the scans right away with the radiologist, a luxury that most patients don't have. Most patients have to wait. But I was able to look at the scans, and I knew right away that my daughter was in a play, and she was, you know, I think she had exams, and so we decided to wait until the weekend to tell her. Saturday rolls around. My husband and I call her upstairs. The kid walks up the stairs. She is two weeks shy of her. 15th birthday she walks up the stairs she looks at me and she said your cancer's back it's stage four there's no cure and I said what the you know what Mm -hmm. and I said what what, like like how yeah she goes mom I could tell something was wrong and the two worst things I could think about were you and dad were getting a divorce or your cancer's back and I figured if you and Dad weren't divorced by now, it was probably not that. So I Googled it. So my kid, you know, kids I hear a lot of times parents, especially young children, younger children say, Well, I don't wanna I, I don't wanna ruin my child's childhood. I don't want to tell them your kids know. Kids are so perceptive. Mm-hmm. That was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. That and telling my mom, who had already had a child, die. Um, that I had metastatic disease. So, my daughter was a sophomore in high school. And because I knew the statistics, I did the math in my head and went, well, I'll probably make it to her high school graduation, but probably not much beyond that. So, she graduated from high school in 2016. It's now 2019.
0: So you got college graduation.
1: She graduates from college in 2020. And while things can change on a, the second, with this disease, um, I'm starting to feel like it's looking pretty good
0: that I'm going to make it to that, high school, that college, graduation, college graduation. That's wonderful. Yeah. I think, you know, I talk, I've talked to a lot of people about this, but when you become a parent, it's everything shifts. It's yeah. not about you anymore. It's not. You know? It's not. I, you know, I,
1: I know that I'm, I'm going to die before my time from this disease. Based on my family history, my mom is 92 with her third occurrence of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. My maternal uh, grandmother lived well into her 80s. Two maternal aunts lived into their mid-90s. My paternal grandparents lived till 98 and 99, respectively. I should live well into my Mm -hmm. 90s. I know I'm not going to. I I don't worry about me dying. I worry about the impact on my family, specifically Mm -hmm. on my daughter, and I know if I can if I can stick around until the next treatment comes along and I can be here a little bit longer, I just kind of want to get her
0: into yeah. adulthood
1: because, oh, my God, she's 20 years old, yes. entering her senior year in college, and she had to text me not very long ago and ask me what to do about a flat tire. You know, she still needs me. Yeah, she, she's going to need you for yeah. a long time. And that was one of the really hard things about this diagnosis is I was a doctor in solo private practice, I was a really good OBGYN. And for so many years it was that was that was almost who I was. And then I had a kid, and then a mom was who I was, and I was a mom and a doctor, and I thought that MD was really good because mm-hmm. we put the mom first. Yeah. But those two things were my entire identity. It wasn't just what I did, it was who I was. And I get diagnosed with this disease. I told you they had to do ephemeral rotting. I called my orthopedic surgeon friend and he looked at the images and he goes, I'm putting you on the schedule for tomorrow. And I went, Dude, in California, everybody's, dude, I have five patients on the operating room schedule for tomorrow. I can't, I'm not going to cancel five patients. So I had that femoral rotting done six days after diagnosis. The day after my diagnosis was the last day I picked up a scalpel because I had the surgery and then I'm recovering from surgery and then I started on chemotherapy. And starting chemotherapy right after major surgery means the recovery for both takes a lot longer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then I developed neuropathy, numbness in my hands. Would you want someone operating on you who has numb fingers and can't feel what they're doing? So I lost my career. And how do you, how do you process that? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I got involved with advocacy. Because, because here I am, I, I, I have this career that I was really, really good at. And I was um, probably not as good, but was also really invested in being a mom. I think I was a better doctor than uh, than I am a mother. Um, I a little too hard on my daughter. But she's in high school. She's growing up. She's going to go off to college. And and when I finally you know lost my career and I had that time for motherhood, and I'm like, crap, she's going away to college now. What am I supposed to do? And so I began to think of another way that I could be useful, and I found... A community of people. I went to my very first conference, uh, metastatic breast cancer specific conference, about a year, quite a year after I was diagnosed. And I saw these women and men who were using their voices and asking questions of researchers and talking to other people. And I went, wow, maybe, maybe I can do something like that because I, I, I need to feel useful. And I think that's the reason why a lot of us become doctors, mm-hmm. we want to help, we want to make a difference. Of course. And so advocacy has allowed me to continue to do that.
0: And for someone who's diagnosed and wants to be an advocate, how do they start the process to do that?
1: Well, there's so many different ways of being an advocate, and, and there are so many people who say to me, oh, you know, I can't do what you do, I can't get up in front of this you know, 40,000 people oncology meeting mm-hmm. and go, hey, I'm going to ask a question. But, you know, the first time that you ask your doctor a question in that exam room, you're being an advocate. When you say, hey, doc, why are you recommending this treatment instead of this other one I read about or my friend is on, you're advocating for yourself. And so all of us can be advocates. You don't. Everybody doesn't have to spend time and money to go to big national mm. meetings. You can be an advocate locally. Um, every time that you help somebody else that, is diagnosed behind you, and you tell them that, you know, it's not, this is not the end of the world. Uh, it's a different world. It rocks your world. But here are ways that you can do this, and I'm here to help you. You're being an advocate. And then you can become involved with organizations. Let's say you're really great, like you were the class mom who threw the parties, and, you know, you might be really good at fundraising. And there are amazing organizations like MetaVibe where 100% of donations go to metastatic-focused research, research to benefit the already metastasized patient. I have a couple friends of mine, one of whom is here, who started this big fancy dress ball called a Metzgerade, and of all places, northwest Arkansas. But it's where Walmart headquarters, Tyson Chicken headquarters. So there's, like, some rich people there. And they raise Boku bucks, like, things with, like, lots of zeros. I live in Lake Tahoe. Yeah, there's rich people that have second homes there, but there's not a community. Yeah. So I, I worked with some other women in our town on and, and a fundraiser, and we do a concert that a really popular local musicians come and play at. We charge $20 a head, and last year we raised $20,000 for Medivirus. That's amazing. But even if you have a lemonade yeah. stand and you raise twenty. dollars
0: you're still going to help. And you're doing something. And you're something. doing
1: something good or you're doing something that you're focusing a little bit more outward, and and I think that's really helpful. I think we can always, we can get into our heads mm-hmm. with this metastatic diagnosis and, and just like, oh my God, this is so awful, and it's, you know, I'm going to die, and it's going to affect my family. This is so awful. But if you can just, in a little way, get outside your head and, and help somebody else, it just... Yeah, it makes you feel so wonderful to do that.
0: And I think it again it gives you something to focus mm-hmm. on. You know, did you ever or people you know experience, you know, why me?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think I think that is true for all of us. And in my first inclination um, which would have lasted a lot longer, was this is my fault because I didn't take that aromatase inhibitor for the full five years. Mm-hmm. But my first experience as a patient was not this diagnosis. Um, I suffered from infertility and multiple miscarriages. And believe me, when you do that and you're an OBGYN, you really feel like a failure. I felt like a failure as a woman. I felt like a failure as a doctor. And I saw this amazing infertility specialist. And one of the things he said to me um, was, because I had gotten pregnant, I was asking him about being on a blood thinner. And he said... So how would you feel if you miscarried if you didn't do it? It's my fault. It would be my fault. And how would you feel if you miscarried if you did do it? Well, I would feel like I tried everything. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, either case, it's not your fault. So, you know, I learned not to blame myself. And there can be a lot of patient blaming. Mm -hmm. Even things today, um, looking at some of the posters, of the hundreds and hundreds of posters that are here, there was a poster that talked about using a treatment after the patient failed brain radiation. Well, the patient didn't fail. The patient didn't fail, the treatment fails. Um, People often look at, well, again, it goes along with why did this treatment work Mm -hmm. for you? And even when you're early stage, any kind of cancer. Well, uh, what's your diet like? What did you eat? Did you smoke? Did you drink? Mm -hmm. Do you have stress in your life? Because people are always trying to find the thing that makes them not similar to you. Because, of course, it's that that caused my cancer. and not not, just because shit happens,
0: you Mm -hmm. know? But you smoke, so I'm I'm not not, going to get cancer. No, it's true. And I think that people always want to find out why. And there really is no why. Sometimes there is no why. A lot of times there is no why. But I think, you know, things that you mentioned, that the terminology that we use in our research and our publications and posters, I mean, people, you know, I guarantee they didn't even think about that. Right. But,
1: you know, I'm going to put in Mm -hmm. one of my my soapbox plugs. If every researcher, if every oncologist involved a patient, disease and stage appropriate, in their thinking about doing a clinical trial, any type of trial, and they involve them from the minute they're thinking about it, all the way through the entire process, up to delivery of results, you're going to get a better trial. Absolutely. Because we are going to think of things like that, like, dude, don't say the patient failed the trial. It's the trial failed the patient. Or, um, you know, you're asked, you want to ask these questions. You want us to come in for a biopsy every two weeks. Like, why? But give me explain the reason. And then they design a better trial because of it. So that's another way that people can get involved is participating in research. I am internally grateful to every single patient who's done a clinical trial.
0: Cause that's how yeah. we move the field yeah. forward. But you're right; there are trials that do not accrue, and it's because they require weekly visits, right. yeah. and that are not covered. So, right. yeah,
1: they're, they're not covered. Or you have to. You know, another big issue of mine is decentralized clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Bring the trials to the patient. Yeah. And what I say is, I live at Lake Tahoe. I could get on my phone right now. On my phone, okay. I don't even have to go find a computer. Yeah. Get on my phone right now. I could order something from Amazon. It could be at my house tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So if we can bring things like that to the patient in a timely manner, then there's no reason we can't bring trials to the patient. Absolutely. To, you get the argument that, oh, well, you know, there's there's all these rules and requirements. I'm like, have you ever heard of telemedicine? So, no, you can't have uh, expect a community oncologist to spend an hour getting informed consent. But why can't that patient Skype in telemedicine yes. in to the mothership research exactly. center? And have the... The, the, the nurse navigator, your research nurse, who's doing the informed consent for their, your patients yeah. there in Big Mecca, to do the same thing um, over telemedicine. And, oh, my gosh, the last, I'm married to a, a builder who thinks that real estate is the way to go. And the last time we bought a property, we did DocuSign online.
0: Yeah. Like, we didn't even have to go five minutes to the title office. Yeah. I mean, it, but you're right. I, I mean, think about that. You buy a house. Yeah. You don't have to go anywhere. Right. And if
1: Amazon and FedEx can get something to me in 24 hours living in Lake Tahoe, then I think going to a CLIA-certified lab in your yeah. town and having most of the blood tests that are done to follow in trials are just normal stuff. Yes. There's CBCs, their chem panels. If there's some exotic test, FedEx it to the mothership. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to think outside the box to make things better for patients, and that's, that's another way that, that I'm passionate about advocating Um, but again if you're a patient and you're in a small town you can still ask your oncologist hey doc is there a trial for me and a lot of docs will say well you don't need a trial now save it for later we need trials when we're diagnosed Mm -hmm. especially with metastatic disease because when we really need it later on we're not going to be eligible because we've had too many prior lines of therapy or we're too sick
0: well I, i think that speaks to two points so one you know i I think we actually have to broaden our eligibility criteria, right? Mm-hmm. If we're trying to enroll people after three, four lines of therapy, we have to assume that they are going to be yes. sick. Yeah. You know, we, but the other thing is, so, you know, there's hundreds of posters being presented, right? And, and, and they're wonderful and they're great research. but They all say, well, this is hypothesis generating and, you know, maybe this is some biomarker, right? Like, how do you feel about that, right? They're not actually, a lot of this stuff isn't
1: actionable. Right. Well, and that's, that's where my background as a physician and straddling that world between mm-hmm. patient and, and the medical world is I don't have probably the same degree of frustration and impatience as a lot of patients do. Mm-hmm. Do I think that there can be improvements and things can be done faster? Absolutely. You know, so many trials are, we're going to do this one little arm and we're going to compare these we we're going to mm-hmm. compare to standard of care. Um, we already know standard of care because, oh my God, those drugs already went through a clinical trial mm-hmm. and they've been used for five years. We know that. Why do we have to include that as an arm? Mm-hmm. So we can get patients in faster, half the number of patients, if you don't yeah. have that control standard of care. We know standard of care. It's everybody else out there who's not in the who's trial getting the, the trial. treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we have to do things serially? Why can't we do it in parallel? Um, why can't we use, you know, there's so many different ways that can get things faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I review grants, and sometimes I review a grant and I'm like, that is really elegant science. But it is not going to make a Philippines beans difference to a real patient in the real world. But if you asked this question, instead of the question you're asking, or if you did your mouse model in this type of mouse model versus that type of mouse model, that's going to be more applicable to real, live patients. So, you know, let's forget about this elegant science where somebody's going to name a pathway
0: after you. Like that stupid Krebs cycle <laughs> we learned in <laughs> yeah, medical school.
1: That like, I'm like, what good what, what does that do? Yeah. But I remember that name.
0: remember the name. But if you uh-huh. said draw it for me right now, I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't yeah, do it. Couldn't yeah. do it. So, again, if you involve a patient, mm-hmm. even in your
1: basic science research, you know, those people that never get out of their lab, if, if they actually come get out and have a cup of coffee with a real-life patient, their research is going to be better. You know, we're going to have mm-hmm. a, a synergistic relationship that is going to make everything better for all. We, we truly are stronger together. Of course.
0: Yeah. Um, so you're active on social media, and... What kind of things have you noticed by interacting with people on social media, interacting with researchers, oncologists? You know, what have you taken from it, and what do you bring to that?
1: Well, there, there's a couple things. You know, one of the things is again, I live in a small community. There are currently, I think, three of us in my town of twenty thousand people that have metastatic breast cancer. I, you know, I know all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's not a, there's not, a, there's, we don't even have an in-person support group until a friend of mine and I started one for all women with any mm. cancer um, so I find great support personal support in these online communities my closest friends some of them are people I have never met in real life and when we do meet up at someplace like this it's so amazing so there's that personal support aspect of some of these online communities via Facebook um, via Twitter, mm-hmm. um, there's an amazing group for breast cancer, breast cancer social media, hashtag BCSM, mm-hmm. that is patients, early stage metastatic, oncologists, researchers, you know, sometimes a couple industry people. And it's this wonderful conversation every Monday night at six Eastern, mm-hmm. or at nine Eastern, yeah. six for me on the Pacific <laughs> Coast. And that's just a great way to interact. Um, I have met people through that medium that have then contacted me and said, hey, I am a a good example of this. There's a researcher, um, there's a palliative care doctor who's involved in that, and she and a couple of other female oncologists, happen to be female oncologists, were asked to do an article on social media for this year's ASCO educational book. She knew me from social media. She reached out to me and said, hey, would you like look over this and give us some comments and feedback? And I did. And they included me as a co-author.
0: Mm-hmm. Which was yeah. so cool. That's really cool. Um,
1: so there are those opportunities. Um, coming to meetings like, like this, I a couple years ago went up to someone who was presenting. I went up to Tatiana Prowl mm-hmm. of the FDA after a meeting and said, I appreciate this work you're doing. You need to do more. Well, we're friends now, and we've had we've had further meetings. And some of the things that we have patients have told her have made it into the F, into the FDA's line of sight and they are they have a working group right now looking at why do we have twenty-eight day washouts? Yeah. You know, nobody in the real world stops their drug no, for twenty-eight days when exactly. they progress. So those kind of opportunities that it would never have happened without without social media, without you know coming to conferences like ASCO or the San Antonio Breast yeah. Cancer Symposium um,
0: that are just amazing. And it's, I mean, I think social media connects us all and you're kind of, everyone's the same on social media. Yeah. You know, these big names, these big, these leaders in the field, there's yeah. still just 140 characters right. on Twitter.
1: Yeah, right. Absolutely. And you know, you see people like you follow them on social media and then you realize that they follow you too. And, yeah. You know, Dr. Don Design, who is like the best dressed oncologist yes. on the planet, I ran into him last, you know, mm-hmm. last night, and he's like, "Hey, Kelly," and I'm like, "Oh my God! Like, I look like a slob next yeah. to you." But I so think I think everyone me. looks like a slob next <laughs> like to him. Yeah, but it's just a great opportunity, and so then you can have these start having these mm-hmm. conversations about, you know, about the research that they're doing, and and that you know, you again. We, as patients, can let them know what's important to us. They can let us know what's coming down the pike. And, you know, we, we're, we're going to move forward faster together. Yeah. Oh, it's
0: it's so true. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. Okay. Come, and thank you for the work
1: you, you do as well. As someone who practiced OBGYN for 25 yeah. years, you know, someone doing GYN oncology and also breast oncology is I'm very grateful to you and everyone else who does this work. Thank you.
0: Where can listeners find you
1: online? So I'm on Twitter. It's mm-hmm. at Stage4Kelly. And I'm also on Facebook, and it's Kelly Shanahan. Now, there's a drummer named Kelly Shanahan. That's not me. So if you look Kelly
0: Shanahan like Taha, <laughs> you can probably find me. Awesome. Thank you again so much. Thank and, you. And enjoy the rest of the meeting. Absolutely. Soak my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Shanahan. I learned a lot from her, and I think it's so important for doctors to really pay attention to the language that we are using when doing clinical trials, when interacting with patients. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And as always, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow this show. You can find me on social media at Dr. DrToplinsky.com on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for information on the latest cancer news, podcast updates, and healthy living in general. Have a great weekend, and I will see all of you next week.